1: Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. How do you guys feel about science this week?
0: Um, I'm feeling a bit lost in it, actually. No, I'm feeling good about it. I'm feeling great. But it's okay to be
1: lost in it because it is a wondrous place to get lost, (laughs) is it not, Claire?
0: It is, it is. There's always something new to see when Excellent. you are lost in science. Great. Um, now, my name is
1: Chris, and this week I am getting lost in outer space, in the waters of outer
0: space. The waters of outer space? What well, kind of,
1: yeah. We're trying to find out where the, the water on Earth came from, and the answer may well be in outer space. Whoa. Um, yeah, due to recent studies that also, thankfully, this being the International Year the Periodic Table, use... Distinguishing elements, or in fact, isotopes, I guess. So it's not really, okay, so it's not really an element story. It's more an isotope story, but it's still a good story. It's about asteroids, about water, it's about space, it's about rocks, it's about, ah, it's about, it's the vibe of the thing,
2: basically. (laughs) Although, in, you know, in old fashioned terminology, in old fashioned terminology, water was an element back when they thought there was, you know, Four elements of yeah, but it'd be much shorter year if we
1: only had to do four stories. That's true. Yeah. That's
2: true. We could just do them over and over again. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah, yep. Stu, yeah. what are you presenting for us today?
2: Well, speaking of water, I am looking into something really quite nasty that lives in the water. Well, nasty for us. It's not very nasty if if you happen to be one. But I'm looking at uh, box jellyfish. So if you you probably heard of box jellyfish, they're really quite dangerous mm. jellyfish. They have a really painful sting that can pretty much debilitate people and that's how they catch their food. But researchers at the University of Sydney have figured out exactly how the venom from box jellyfish injures people and they've done a lot of experimentation on figuring out how it works and have possibly come up with an antidote to uh, box jellyfish stings so i'm talking to greg neely from the university of sydney who is going to explain how they figured that out and why did they even start looking at it it seems a very odd thing for them to do
1: Great. The antidote is not peeing on the person, is it?
2: No, no. That is an old-fashioned method. And there's another one of, you know, slather yourself in vinegar or something like yeah. that. But Who takes a bottle of vinegar to the beach unless yeah. unless you unless, really love it? Unless,
0: on your unless chips. you've got chips. Yeah. Yeah. yeah true. And then yeah. delicious.
1: Also used for treating head injuries and nursery rhymes, as we all know.
2: Mm. Or C- not treating them. Yeah. Claire, what have you got for us?
0: Well, this week I'm going to be chatting to Dr. Elodie Campras, who is the Melbourne coordinator for Pint of Science. Pint of Science is coming back to our shores. Actually, it's all around Australia. And it is three nights in pubs around not only Australia, but the world where scientists will talk about their science in the pub with a pint of beer.
1: So what, how it works? You just go to a pub, you just find a scientist sitting in the bar and you go up to <laughs> it and say, hey, tell me about science.
0: Pretty, pretty much. It's happening in 19 cities around Australia. Yep. So there's going to be a lot of those pubs. So chances are if you do walk into a pub, there might be a scientist speaking about what their research.
1: But this is actually more organised events, is it not? Well, it
0: is, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, right. yeah. go to au and you can um, find a bit more, or maybe just listen to our show. You F- can he- hear about it all from Elodie.
1: Fantastic. Well, more of that and more else to come on with the show. <laughs> Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, I have a story. Well, it's not quite our In Your Element series.
0: In Your in our element?
1: element? Or is it In our, our Element? In The Element? In The Element?
0: In Your Element. I think it's In Your Element.
1: But this is not. I'm not actually doing one of those. They're, they're great, those series. It's like they mostly are great. Stu and talking about like a particular element and all the properties and stuff.
0: As you know, Chris, they're even better because it's 2019, the... International Year of the Periodic Table of Elements.
1: Which is why I'm doing this story, because it's not <laughs> focusing necessarily on a element and all the marvelous element, but looking at how the elements are useful in science. Great. Apart from everything being made of elements. So what is your story? My story is well it's looking at hydrogen. Okay, we'll build up to it. We're talking about hydrogen.
0: Okay. Let's start at the very start. The the
1: hydrogen, you know, the hydrogen is your smallest atom. It's got like a, a proton um, is a nucleus is just a proton with an electron orbiting around the outside? Mm. Well, there is another stable isotope which is called deuterium yeah which has a neutron as well as a proton in the nucleus right so it 's twice as heavy basically. Yep. Um, there's also one called tritium, which has two neutrons in the nucleus, but it is unstable. So it's only ever found in trace amounts because it doesn't, it doesn't stick around. Okay. But yeah, so deuterium is the, um, is the heavier version, and it is quite rare on Earth. In the ocean, obviously, hydrogen's a big part of water, H2O. I think you're familiar with that. So the hydrogen in, in water, deuterium is only about 156 parts per million of the the hydrogen in the water, Does so that make not sense? so not a lot, yeah, yeah, not a lot, sense, not a lot not a lot, no, but that also makes it a good way of working out the composition, like the amount of deuterium to normal hydrogen, they are working out where the hydrogen came from, that makes up the water, and therefore maybe where the water came from, and that 's what we 're talking about, because this is one of the questions, like Earth obviously has a lot of water lots of water, lots of water, maybe
0: especially on the surface,
1: some would say not enough. <laughs> But no, no, some would say not enough, but others would say too much.
0: I would say probably not not enough uh, drinking water. It's not. It's not fresh water. It's not
1: evenly distributed, is it? No. No. Anyway, uh, that's not the point here. But there is a lot of water on Earth now. When Earth formed in the early solar system, I mean, it was just a, you know out of all the bits of rock that stuck together, stuff like that. Things are colliding and joined together. It would have been very, very hot. And so the puzzle's always been like, if there was water on Earth when it formed, then it would have evaporated. Like, mm. how do we still have oceans today? Like, why, where did the water come from? Now, so one theory that was uh, common for a long time was that it came from comets. Comets are full of water. Because uh, they form in the outer solar system where it's cooler. And so whereas, you know, in the inner solar system where we are, everything is kind of these rocks, these molten rocks and stuff like that. Out in the outer solar system, it's cooler. You can get water forming. And then these comets, as you probably have noticed, they come into the inner solar system to a visit. Sometimes they hit the Earth. And the idea was so maybe then, you know, all these comets hitting the Earth piled up all this water.
0: What? That's actually a theory.
1: That's actually a theory, yeah. Yeah. Um, But in the recent years, there have been spectroscopic analysis of comets and showing that the water in comets contains too much deuterium.
0: Right. So, hang on, as in too much, as in it's not the same concentration that we find in our Not the same
1: ratio, no, it doesn't match the water we find on (laughs) Earth.
0: Ah, I detect a puzzle.
1: It is a puzzle. But there's been a new paper published in Science Advances, that's a journal, showing that it could have come from somewhere much closer in. This is a paper published by... Um, like
0: the Murray-Darling or... <laughs>
1: Go on. <laughs> closer in than that, actually. Um, Matrei Bose, who is a cosmochemist, which I think you agree is a cool name. That cool, is cool a job title.
0: great job title.
1: And her postdoc, Ziliang Cos- Jin... Both from Arizona State University of the United States. Both
0: cosmochemists? Well, I suppose
1: their postdoc working with her would be a cosmochemist as well. In training. Probably, yes. Anyway, what they did was they analysed samples brought back from the asteroid Itokawa. Now, this asteroid Itokawa, it's kind of like the inner part of the solar system. It orbits sort of around the distance of Earth and Mars. And it was visited in 2005 by a Japanese spacecraft called Hayabusa. And the Hayabusa spacecraft took a scraping off the asteroid and then returned it to Earth. It arrived back in 2010. Incredible, right?
0: That is incredible. Yeah. I mean,. You should do a story on that as well. I'd oh, look! Like to hear more been, about that.
1: This is the first asteroid that we've taken us. We, we, the human race. Yeah, we, taken the human race. Of.
0: That's right. You can speak on behalf of us, the okay. human race. Okay. Yeah.
1: I think last year there was a couple more that were visited by uh, various countries. But it's incredible. Um, but this was the first one. Now, this asteroid Itakawa was what they call an S-type asteroid. That means it's composed of silicate minerals, um, like your, your typical rocks that we find here on on the Earth. Right. Um, now. It's difficult, obviously, getting stuff from an asteroid. So there wasn't much brought back. There were like 1,500 particles brought back from this asteroid, <gasps> and Bose and Ziliang were only able to analyse two of them. And these are tiny particles. They're each about like a tenth of the width of a human hair across.
0: Wow! So we're
1: talking about a tiny, tiny sample. Oh my
0: goodness! But they
1: analysed them with this thing called an iron microprobe, and they found that they had nearly a thousand parts per million of water. Within these um, these rocks, even though they're they're just kind of silicate rocks, and when they analysed the ratio of deuterium to hydrogen in the water, they found that it was very close to Earth's, which is kind of surprising that there would be so much water in, in just rocks that formed in, in the solar system. But it suggests that this could be a clue to where the water came from. So look, there's a couple of things that could have happened. One is that the asteroids like Itokawa could have hit the Earth when the Earth had formed and deposited water. I mean, it's a small amount, but you pile up enough of these things and there'd be a lot of them banging around the early solar system. They did some calculations uh, and they reckon that um, they could have delivered something like half the water in Earth's oceans could have come from asteroids like <laughs> (laughs) (gasps)
0: Whoa!
1: That's surprising, isn't it? That is
0: surprising.
1: Yeah. But more than that, the fact that there is this water in these rocks, rocks, again, which are very similar to what we find on Earth, then it suggests that perhaps, you know, there could have been rocks within Earth that still retain some water as well. So this is the other idea, is that maybe there is a lot of rock within the Earth, in the magma, in the, the molten rock beneath the surface. And that this is the other idea, is that there is this water stored there and then volcanoes bring it to the surface and it evaporates into steam and stuff like that. So yeah, this is now suggesting that maybe the case might be like native water perhaps to Earth within the Earth. See why I said it was close? Close in. That's like really close in. Oh, it's very or close from these in. asteroids which also formed near us. So there you go. That's an interesting story. Now it's again it's only two particles that they analyze, so we'll see this is borne out by other measurements, but it's a pretty exciting thing and it shows how elements can be useful. The element is not just something that boils water on your stove it also can show how boiled water i that i lost that analogy somewhere but anyway you get the idea elements called very hot and cool
2: across australia on the community radio network you're listening to lost in science You are listening to Lost in Science. Anyone who's been to the northern coasts of Australia will be familiar with warning signs about the box jellyfish, which is a danger to swimmers and pretty much anyone in the water at various times of the year. The sting of the box jellyfish is quite dangerous and very painful by all accounts. Not that I've been stung myself, but I have got... Uh, pain researcher Greg Neely on the line with me today To talk about how they have been investigating The venom of the box jellyfish And what they have discovered about it Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science,
3: Greg no, thanks. thanks for having me, Stu No
2: worries So how did you get started looking at box jellyfish? I mean, obviously it's, uh, you know, it's a danger It's a well-known danger to shipping, I guess Or danger to swimming, at least so what what started you off on the path of investigating the, the box jellyfish stings?
3: I guess it was kind of like a perfect combination of, of situations. So I've been studying pain research and uh, and genetics of pain since around 2003. And I moved to Australia to Sydney at the Garvin Institute in 2010. And so as like a pain genetics researcher moving to Australia, there's just a ton of deadly creatures with venoms that are kind of interesting from a research point of view. And so also that... just seem...
2: That usually puts people off coming to Australia. that encouraged you to move down here?
3: Uh, No, I kind of moved down first and then thought, oh, maybe I can do this kind of stuff. Okay. Um, And so, yeah, so I I basically kind of reached out to the community and was able to get a few different types of venoms from different people, and we saw such a really strong effect with the box jellyfish venom, and we know it causes excruciating pain, and no one knows how that works, so that's why we started working on it.
2: Did, did anyone even know what was the difference between the box jellyfish venom and other venomous creatures? Why did nobody understand what was the cause of such uh, such pain?
3: Well, it's I guess it's because they're pretty hard. There's no system where you can just grow and, and study box jellyfish at like large numbers in, in a lab setting. So you basically have to go out and catch wild ones and then collect the venom. And so that's one of the um, aspects that makes it hard to study. But in general, I mean, for, for lots of venoms of Australian uh, creatures, we don't really know exactly everything that's in them and how they all work. So there's lots of room to do this kind of research for lots of different venoms.
2: And what have you found about the, the jellyfish venom and how did you go about uh, investigating it?
3: Okay, so what we did is we took human cells, like human cell culture, So a cancer cell line that just grows in tissue culture and then we add the jellyfish venom and what the jellyfish venom does is just totally kill the human cells so basically we add the venom and then uh, within like half an hour all the cells are dead and so then what we did is we took this new technology called CRISPR genome editing where we can turn off every single gene in the human genome uh, kind of systematically or in big pools and so then we grew up a huge amount of human cells knocked out all the different genes in all these different cells. So we have 50 million cells and each one has a different gene missing. And then we add the venom. And now instead of killing all the cells, some cells were resistant. So then we added more venom and they're still resistant. So then we grow those cells up and we identify which genes we've been removing. And then that told us how the venom worked.
2: So the venom targets specific genes in the, in the human cells?
3: Well, okay, so basically the human cell... So there's aspects of human cells that the venom requires to kill. We believe it's directly targeting the human cells, but the other possibility is that by removing those genes, the cells just become resistant through like a a secondary pathway. So it's either direct targeting or indirect.
2: So the genes involved, would they be genes that are present in other animals, other sea creatures and that sort of thing as well?
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so the main, the, the receptor we hit is this gene called ATP2B1. ATP, TB1, so that's um, highly conserved to insects. But then also the, the top, one of the maybe top two or top three pathways that we hit was uh, cholesterol synthesis, and, and all these animals have cholesterol in their cell membranes.
2: Okay. So what's the future of this understanding? Is there a way that we can apply this to help people who've been stung by a jellyfish?
3: Yeah, so there's a couple of different uh, ways we can move forward. The first is By doing this big screen and identifying this mechanism, we also found a drug that can block jellyfish venom even after cells have been exposed to it. So this drug is uh, cheap and safe and stable, and so we could quite quickly move that into something that can be used for humans if they're exposed to jellyfish. So that's cool from the kind of the antidote side of things, and then also we have now we know that the venom works through this gene called ATP2B1. So now we're we're making mice that are missing that gene and we're just studying their pain processing.
2: So will that help understanding pain in, in a more general way as well?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. So we have no idea why this venom hurts so bad. It could just be because it causes massive tissue death and necrosis and that hurts. Or it could be specifically triggering pain. And and we think it's specifically triggering pain even beyond our, so our research focused on the tissue death, but we think there's components of the venom that are just causing pain without causing damage as well. So now we're taking the venom and breaking it up into its little pieces and then mapping the, the pain-causing factors.
2: That's really interesting stuff because I I know pain is a big problem for uh, for medicine and understanding how pain works in the human body as well. That's, that's uh, interesting breakthroughs that you're getting from uh, what seems to be almost unconnected work.
3: Yeah. Look...
2: I think we have to wrap it up there, but um, thank you for joining us, Greg Neely, from the Dr. John and Ann Chong Lab for Functional Genomics at the Charles Perkins Centre School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney. Interesting stuff. Hope we can see uh, an antidote for the uh, box jellyfish venom on the shelves sometime soon.
3: Sure. We're trying as hard as we can.
2: Thanks so much.
3: Thanks.
0: Now, how do you improve a night out at the pub? Why, at a little bit of science, of course. The Pint of Science Festival is coming back to pubs across Australia this May. And this week, my guest is Dr. Elodie Compras, who is the Pint of Science Melbourne Coordinator. And Elodie is here to tell us about Pint of Science. Welcome to Lost in Science, Elodie. Thank you for
4: having me. What is Pine of Science? So, uh, Pine of Science is a science festival, and the aim is to take the scientists out of their ivory towers and <laughs> onto pubs. Um, and because we believe that uh, people need to know. About science more. We need to make science more accessible for them. Um, and yeah, we need them to interact with the scientists that are doing amazing research around them. So, what can people expect from a night out at Pine of Science? So, in Melbourne this year, we've got eight different venues. Um, so, there's different themes. So, people will talk about, you know, neurosciences, astrophysics. Um, chemistry, biology, conservation, um, social sciences. There's a wide range of themes that we've got. Um, And so people come to the pub, uh, doors open at 6.30 and the event starts at 7.00. And then we've got two or three speakers on each night. Um, that will do short presentations about their research. And then there'll be a lot of fun things like trivia. Uh, we have many giveaway prizes. So people will get the chance to take amazing merchandise with them. So yeah, there'll be plenty of time as well for people to Ask questions and interact with those amazing scientists that we have and to grab a drink. Now, you mentioned
0: there's quite a diversity of science topics um, that are going to be presented um, through Pint of Science. What are some of your favourites?
4: Oh, well, an ocean girl. So, you know, I really like all the marine talks that we've got planned. Uh, But I'm also a big fan of uh, the talks that are going to focus on behavioural change. Uh, So we've got talk on nature connection and plastic pollution
0: and things like that. Wonderful. And it's happening in May, but um, is it happening on one night? When exactly? So um, it's happening across three
4: nights, the 20th, 21st and 22nd of May. That's actually um, the same dates around the world. So this festival is happening in 24 different countries this year. Wow. Um, So all on the same days. Um, So,
0: yeah, come join. And um, it's not just happening in Melbourne. Which other parts of Australia?
4: So it's actually happening in 19 different cities. Um, So we've got... Uh Melbourne of course we've got Geelong we've got Bendigo we've got Wangaratta the Gold Coast uh the Central Coast Sydney Brisbane Perth there's a few more that I'm forgetting here but anyway there's there's 19 different uh cities and 50 different uh, 53 different pubs
0: wow now why do you think it is such a good combination science and beer well
4: you know i think People associate science with boredom. Um, Anyway, the general public. (laughs) Not not, lost in science, we (laughs) don't. Not lost in science, obviously. Um, But, yeah, we want to find ways to make it fun for people to hear about research and science. So, you know, what more fun can you have than a few drinks with your friends and listening to amazing speakers?
0: Now, I've been to my fair share of science talks and, um, I, you know, Often get lost quite quickly, even though I have done um, some science in my past. Um, so, how do you make sure that the scientists who present at uh, the pint of science are uh, pictured at the at you know the le- right level for um, people who are drinking a pint at the um, at the pub?
4: Yep. So we, I've just did check the backgrounds of our speakers. Uh, some of them have amazing experience in in science communication. Um, we've got um, an amazing lineup of speakers. Again, we've got people that have done stand-up comedy at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. They're coming to talk and MC, and so yeah, we just also tell them obviously to avoid jargon and complete like complicated slides and graphs and boring things like that. So we just make sure to tell them to use simple language and attractive, you know, visually attractive slides and things like that.
0: And um, obviously, this isn't the first time that Pine of science has happened. What's been the response to it in the past?
4: I think people really, especially in Melbourne, have an interest for science and science communication. Um, If you look at Melbourne, there's already quite a few science communication nights that are happening. You know, you've got Sound of Science, you've got the Laboratory, you've got Sci-Fi, you know, you've got Nerd Night. Um, So people are definitely interested in it. And um, last year, all together, we released a thousand tickets uh, over three nights for the festival. And we sold more than 90% of tickets. So it shows that there's an interest for it, for sure. And do you think it's going to be different this year? Yeah, so we're definitely bigger than last year. So last year we did three venues and we had 26 speakers. And this year we're doing eight different venues and we have 63 speakers. So yeah, it's different in that respect. We're growing bigger and bigger every year. Uh, and we try to add more fun to it as well. So, this year for the first time, we're really excited to have um, special beers that have been brewed for us. So, uh, Newstead, the, a brewer in Brisbane, has produced some pale ale for us. Does it have a fun, sciencey name? It does, of course. It's called Octopaint because the octopus is our symbol for this year.
0: Fantastic. That is excellent. I have seen the Pint of Science artwork and it is incredible. So Elodie, how is Pint of Science supported?
4: So we've got sponsors that have come on board to help us put this together. Um, So we've got CSIRO, which is Australia's National Science Agency. Uh, They've provided some amazing speakers for us. They're also um, giving some medal throws as giveaways for trivia and competitions and and fun things happening every night. Uh, We also have the Carlton United Brewery that have come on board and is providing a huge and awesome venue for us to have the festival. Um, They're also very generously feeding uh, volunteers and speakers and MCs, So that's great. We also have... Um, venues that have decided to open specifically for us uh, at uh, times they're not usually open so that's really helped um, put this together.
0: And I'm going to ask as well, this is a community-run event full of volunteers, right? No one's getting paid for this. So this is all scientists and science lovers doing it for the love of it.
4: That's exactly right. So we've got an amazing team of volunteers that have worked really, really hard. Again, the festival's entirely run by volunteers. So, yeah, come along and support them.
0: Um, Now, where can people find out more about the speakers, um, get tickets and, yeah, come along to Pine of Science?
4: Yeah, so people can check all the events and buy tickets on our website, Um So that's where all the information is and they'll see all the different events. Of course, we're active on social media as well. So people can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and find out more that way.
0: I am very much looking forward to a beer and some science in the pub at Pine of Science. So across Australia, make sure you check out Pine of Science at that's au or check them out on Instagram or Twitter. And thanks so much for coming in today. No worries. Thank you for having me.
1: And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science, where we've talked about water from asteroids, box jellyfish stings, and pint of science. And remember, if you'd like to find out more about pint of science, you can go to pintofscience.com.au. Now, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and airs around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com.au or you can find us on Facebook, we're Lost in Science on 3CR. or We're also on Twitter, we're at Lost in Science 1. Or you can find us on your friendly podcast app. If you're able to give us a rating and review, please do so because that will help us look good. And otherwise, you can find us on the radio station. Same time next week when Claire, Stu and Chris will get... Lost in Science!
0: Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.